0: This is Susan Kill with you until one o'clock now we've already mentioned the start of the gaA national leagues at this weekend but it's also coming up to the start of the domestic soccer league and the story of soccer on Lee side is beautifully told in a new book Hibbs a history of Cork Hibernians FC. Now, while it only existed briefly, the story of Cork Hibernians is sometimes inspiring and sometimes bizarre as well. And with Cork a dominant force in Irish soccer once again and a new league around the corner, we're going to take a look back on one of Ireland's most intriguing football clubs. And to tell us about it, as always, we're joined by Donald Fallon for another edition of Hidden Histories. Good afternoon, Donald. good to be here. I'm
1: wearing wearing two hats today uh, as a historian (laughs) and a League of Ireland fan. And a League of
0: Ireland fan. Now, football it's safe to say it took its time to get to the south of Ireland. In an
1: Irish context, soccer got here on the island actually very late indeed. And really, it's thanks to one man, uh, John McAllery, who was a, a really interesting character. He was a, a Belfast drapery merchant. He ran the Irish tweed house up on Royal Avenue in Belfast. And the story has it that he went on his honeymoon to Scotland with his wife and he saw people playing soccer and he went, what is this? You know, I need, I need to bring this game to Ireland. And he organised the first ever soccer match here that we know of anyway between two Scottish sides. It was an exhibition match. Uh, and the reports of it aren't great, you know. Paul Rouse, who is the the, the leading sports historian in Ireland, I always say. In his book he found a first hand account of sports journalists watching that match in Belfast. And one of them said, The players went around butting at the ball like a pack of young goats. So <laughs> I don't know I don't know how much soccer has come on in Ireland ever since, but there wasn't a great view of soccer in the early days anyway. And he was this very colourful character in mean, He was unionist in political outlook, he was a great cricket player, he was a Freemason and a temperance advocate. And you know, he'd be out of place basically on all fronts now, on a modern League of Ireland terrace, I dare say. But Belfast, no one can dispute this. Belfast is the birthplace of Irish soccer. I mean, the oldest club in Ireland is Cliftonville. The most successful club in Ireland uh, is Linfield. And the game then spreads very, very slowly by comparison to the neighbouring island across the rest of Ireland. And of course, there are reasons for that. There were political reasons for that. You had the rise of the GAA. Michael Cusack famously condemned what he called the, uh, the, the, the Orange Catholics who play soccer in the Phoenix Park. You know, soccer was presented as somehow unnational. But wherever you had a garrison presence and Cork was one such place, soccer took off. And I think what soccer became, undeniably, was the game of the urban working class. The only sport that could compete with it for popularity in Dublin, in Cork, in Sligo and other places was handball, really. But given how short its history is here, how recent soccer is as a, as a, as a phenomenon uh, in Ireland, it's a great story. And no city has witnessed more passing clubs than Cork. The number of clubs that have come and gone there is just amazing. And the history of soccer in Cork is equal parts heroic and chaotic.
0: Now, why Cork Hibernians? It's
1: a great name. Uh, Belfast had a club called Belfast Celtic and that was a direct nod towards their Glasgow equivalent, Glasgow Celtic. And I presume there must be been some kind of connection between Cork and Edinburgh where you have Hibernian Football Club, but it's nothing to do with him. In, in Edinburgh. Cork Hibernian, which is such a great name. Is a, dire- is a nod in the direction of the ancient order of Hibernians, the, the AOH. And they're sometimes kind of crudely described as a Catholic orange order, but in some ways they are. If you ever seen them march down the street, I mean, they wear green sashes instead of orange ones, and they bang big drums too. Uh, and the AOH, as they're known, they began this team. They purchased its home ground, and they entered the League of Ireland under the name Cork Hibernians in 1957. So they emerged from a kind of Catholic fraternal slash political organisation.
0: And it was something of a golden age, you could say.
1: For Irish soccer, the 1950s. 50s is just this brilliant brilliant time Shamrock Rovers would play against the very famous Busby Babes Matt Busby's Manchester United in front of tens of thousands of people in Dalyman Park and remember that television hadn't made its impact here. I mean, television came... RTE was established in the 1960s as television. So TV was a really late arrival in this country Mm. by comparison to most of Europe. And in the absence of television, if you wanted to watch football, you had to go and physically watch it. So attendances in Ireland in the 1950s are very, very high. And that great threat... And it wasn't just soccer. I mean, the cinema was greatly harmed by television when it arrived here as well. But in the absence of televised soccer from the neighbouring island, we went to watch this in our thousands, in our tens of thousands.
0: And Cork then had it all in a way from a football point of view at that time. Yeah, because
1: what do you need for football to do well in a city? You need an urban population, enough that can sustain multiple sides, And you need a rivalry. And it's true in Glasgow. Celtic without Rangers is nothing. Mm -hmm. And in Dublin, Bows without Rovers is nothing. You You need that rivalry that you can get in a city. And whether you're defined by what side of a river you live on or what side of a street you come from, that local rivalry is at the heart of football. And Cork had it. You had Cork Hibernians and Cork Celtic who played their home game at Turner's Cross where Cork City are now. And that derby had the ability to draw Thousands of thousands of people to it. And Corkibs and their rivals, you know, it was was just a phenomenal time for football. And in the 60s, both clubs were bringing in players from England, which was a real curiosity, you know, in 1960s Ireland.
0: Now, it was fairly rough and ready in terms of the facilities that they had, which probably isn't a surprise Uh, uh, really. Some
1: some League of Ireland fans might say it still is. There's a a (laughs) wonderful hashtag, hashtag the greatest league in the world where people comment on League of Ireland infrastructure, (laughs) chip fans, you know, and the like. And admittedly, the footballing infrastructure in the 60s was poor. And Carl Davenport, who's this legendary player at both Cork sides, and he was sometimes described as Ireland's first uh, heartthrob. He often pops up in the the women's magazines of the day. He's something of a George Best character. He did this great interview recently with the 42.ie, which is a great uh, great sports website. And he gives a very colourful account of what it was like arriving in Cork to play football in the 1960s. And he says... Uh, when I went to Celtic gra- Celtic's ground, Turner's Cross, I walk- walked in and said, that's the worst pitch I've ever seen in my life and that's the worst training ground I've ever come across. But they said, that's the stadium, not the training <laughs> ground. And it's where you're going to play. So that didn't go down too well.
0: Now, the brilliantly named Dave Bacuzzi had a massive influence. What a name.
1: I mean, there's been some great great names in, in League of Ireland history, but Dave Bacuzzi is, is right up there uh, with the best of them. And when the football got better on the pitch, the crowds got larger and the grounds improved too. And all these things go hand in hand and for Cork Hibbs the most significant outsider was the the brilliantly named Dave Bacuzzi Uh, and he had a great footballing history been at Arsenal Manchester City and Reading as a player and he's lured to Ireland by a managerial offer offer. and the story he tells is great he he claims that he's confused by the telegram and he thinks he's being asked to manage a team on Cork Island (laughs) and not Cork Ireland but he took on the team And Backpage Football, the website, did a lovely piece on them recently. They said Bacuzzi changed Hibs on and off the field almost overnight. Hibs were now flamboyant. They were sexy. Their stadium was the place to play and the place to be seen. Players like Mia Dennehy, Dave Wiggy Wiggington, John Lawson, Donny Wallace, Walter Sonny Sweeney became household names. Some wonderful, wonderful names in the mix there. And the attendance has skyrocketed. By 71, the club won the league, bringing it down to Cork for the first time in 20 years. And I think whenever a club outside Dublin It's almost like the GAA mentality comes into soccer. It's happened with Sligo Rovers when they were doing very well a couple of years ago. Whenever a club outside Dublin is doing well on the pitch in soccer, the people get behind them in the same way they get behind GAA teams on a county basis. And that very much happened on the lease out.
0: Now, things got so big, they decided they were going to go on a tour to the US.
1: Which is a ludicrous story. I mean, they, (laughs) they go off to the US in 1976 and they play a summer season in the American Soccer League. Michael Russell has written this great book. He says that they didn't take part in the league as such. They were sort of a joker. They played 11 other teams, but they couldn't win points. But any points won against them counted for their opponents. I mean, think about it. It's absolutely ludicrous. It was a paid holiday, really. They had great crack out there. They played 11 games in just I think it's something like 25 days. <laughs> they played in just a few short weeks, 11, 11 days, and spent more time in the pub uh, than they did playing <laughs> football. It was basically for, for pride and nothing else. But the club did have very, very memorable European nights. And you know, for any League of Ireland fan there's nothing quite as magic as getting into European competition and seeing these great big clubs arrive my favourite picture actually ever taken in the League of Ireland is uh, Inter Milan through Atlone Town and someone photographed the Milan players as they're getting off the bus in Atlone mm-hmm. and they're stepping into puddles and mud you know in mm-hmm. their Italian loafers it's just brilliant but there were some great nights down at Cork-Hibs I mean they took on Chalca, Valencia and Gladbach. And while victories for Irish sides in Europe are rare now and were rare then too, just the spectacle of these teams coming to Cork was was magnificent. They also played in the Blacksnit Cup, which was this great all-Ireland competition. They played in three finals in a row and won one of them. So they were a team that were bringing international recognition onto the football scene uh, in Cork.
0: But it did. Sadly, all fell apart, and, and not just in Cork. And
1: this is one of the mysteries of Irish football. How did it go from the you know the high flying nineteen fifties to the total collapse of the nineteen seventies? And as I mentioned, television is one mm-hmm. factor, but it can't all be blamed on television. You know, some of it has to be blamed on on mismanagement of the league. And it's a wonderful book, "Who Stole Our Game," that you know tries to ask these questions. And it just all falls apart overnight. I mean, Hibs were knocked out of the cup by a very very weak uh, St Patrick's Athletic team in in, in the early seventies, and one of the board members said. You know, in four years under the current manager, we failed to unearth a great deal of local talent. To lose to a team of local players like Pat's in the cup poses the question: Where have we gone wrong? When you pay a Pay out big money and wages as we've done. You expect to dominate. We need £1,400 for every home game to pay our way. And unless we are successful, we will not get that. That doesn't sound like an awful lot of money in today's football. It's nothing. But, you know, that's how it was. And reining things in financially, which is what teams had to do at the time, was the last thing they were doing. Because as the attendances dropped, Irish football clubs panicked and went, OK, what do we do? Bring in the big guns, you know, go over to England, get retired lads or retiring lads, put them on the pitch, people will come and watch them. George Best has brought down to Cork, he plays for Cork Celtic, and he's absolutely rubbish, you know, and it just shocks people that this great footballer can't perform. And Rory Croke in the Irish Times wrote a nice piece about it recently, he said he picked up healthy cheques for, according to newspaper reports, £600 a game. At the time, the average industrial wage for a man was Mm. £53 a week and £27 for a woman. But crowds were left underwhelmed by a player who the Irish Times described as uncommonly well-fleshed around the hips. (laughs) So, you know, going over to England and Scotland, finding lads that were big names like Best and bringing them to Ireland, it just wasn't enough, really. And it was happening everywhere. Shamrock Rovers, Johnny Giles was the player manager there. And he was interviewed by Vincent Brown and he said, I want to win the European Cup with Shamrock Rovers. This may sound fantastic, but if you consider the amount of football talent there is in Ireland, it isn't all that outrageous an ambition. Unfortunately, by the late 1970s, it was an outrageous ambition because just keeping the clubs afloat, that was the great challenge.
0: So by 1976 then, John, things were in crisis.
1: The dream was gone, but the deaths were real. You know, By, by seventy-six, Cork Hibs couldn't push on. And the club secretary in the Cork Examiner he Says that we need thousands of pounds, 8,000 pounds. You know what you think about football today? I mean, there's people playing on the pitch for Barcelona who are probably making 8,000 pounds a minute. Mm. 8,000 pounds is what was needed to save the club. And it was this crisis meeting that only 300 people showed up to. And by that point, it was basically over. And they crashed out of the league in 79. And Cork went through this awful period then. Cork United popped up in 79 but folded at 82. And that left the city without any, any club uh, in the league for two years. So, how does a city go from attracting? Tens of thousands of people to football stadiums. They're having no football club in the League of Ireland in just a few short years. That says an awful lot about the very, very grim 1970s in Irish football.
0: But these, Donald, are very different times,
1: and they are. And I think it's very nice that clubs that have fallen by the wayside, uh, like this club, they retain a place in folk memory. You know, Dromcadowra in Dublin are the same. The club is long, long gone, but it's very much a part of, of local identity in that area. And Cork City, who are really in the ascendancy uh, of Irish football today, along with with Dundalk, they are getting some of the largest crowds in this country into Turner's Cross. I mean, they are getting just phenomenal, phenomenal crowds. And an awful lot of the people that are bringing their children or their grandchildren to watch Cork City Football Club were probably Cork Hibs fans or Cork United fans uh, in their day. So there's a nice continuity in Cork, even if they've had so many clubs, you know, football remains there. And this beautiful, beautiful book, I mean, what it does in its own word, it tells the story of 19 seasons 228 players and one legend and that's what it is.
0: Brilliant. Good stuff. My thanks to Donald Fallon as always, author of the Come Here To Me blog and book volume two. That is it from me today. Off the Balls up next here on News Talk. Big thanks to the production team today, Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan. Peter Malloy was on sound. Now to play us out on On The Record this afternoon, born on this day, January the 27th, 1961 was Gillian Gilbert from New Order. So she is 58 today and last week we had a lot of Blue Monday so I'm going to go with this for today. Thanks for listening and enjoy your Sunday.